Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 114, George Bach, Lay Identifications Based on Surveillance Video. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is George Buck. George is the Lee and Leon Carlitz Professor in Evidence and Procedure at the University of New Mexico School of Law, where he teaches evidence, constitutional law, trial practice, and a number of other classes. Our podcast today features George's recent article, Moderating the Use of Lay Opinion Identification Testimony Related to Surveillance Video. It was published in 2020 in the Florida State University Law Review. In it, George takes on the increasing practice among courts of allowing lay witnesses, often police officers, to make identifications of people who are found in surveillance videos. Now, to be clear, these are cases where the witness in question wasn't actually present during the recorded event. Instead, the witness is somehow familiar with the person in the video, which is nominally going to allow them to make an identification on the basis of the video alone. This practice might strike some of you as intuitively somewhat problematic, and perhaps it should. But remember that the authentication rules clearly contemplate that a lay opinion witness can identify things like handwriting or voice, even if the witness wasn't present at the time of the writing or recording. So for example, A husband can testify that handwriting was his wife's, even though he wasn't there when she signed her will or another document. So that raises the question, why might these particular lay witnesses who are making video identifications problematic? George analyzes this question and then proposes some safeguards for their use. George, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year. I appreciate your invitation. Your article is about the use of lay witness identifications in the context of surveillance videos. To start us off, can I have you set the stage by elaborating a bit on the broader context? So who's using these lay witness identifications? How are they using them, and in what context are they using them? Absolutely. So as everybody knows, we're increasingly in a surveillance society. We're being recorded all of the time. And so it's no surprise that this is going to come up more frequently. And where we see it used more often is in criminal cases where the prosecution is offering surveillance video of fill-in-the-blank, a break-in, a robbery, and The issue that has arisen, because that in and of itself is not that controversial, is that the prosecution is calling witnesses, and again, I'm generalizing, this is where we most often see it, but you can see it in civil cases as well, calling witnesses, and in particular, law enforcement officers, 
to testify to their opinion about the identity of an individual in the surveillance video. Typically, that's going to be the criminal defendant. And that's the context. That's the basic backdrop for this is where you have courts, a video can be authenticated and historically a video would speak for itself. They would play the video and then the jury can decide who is that in the video. But more often now what we see is this testimony in the form of lay opinion, not experts, but lay opinion saying, I'm familiar with this person and that's this person in the video. But there's a number of problems in permitting that kind of testimony, particularly in a criminal case when offered by a law enforcement officer. And any thoughts on why this practice has become more prominent? So surveillance video has obviously been out there for decades, I guess. And in fact, you might argue that modern surveillance video tends to be at a higher resolution. So it's less grainy and fuzzy. And so the jury needs less help. It's actually often funny to me that surveillance video that you see is very blurry when our phones can get crystal clear, high def video on any sort of vacation video that we want to shoot. So why the need for this kind of lay identification testimony today? Well, your question goes right to the point, which is if there's no problem with the video, and that actually is a factor that many of the courts rely upon, this testimony isn't really helpful to the jury or to the fact finder because the video is clear enough as it is. Typically where you get into this is where perhaps there is a less than perfect video because of the angle or it is grainy. It's not one of the modern technologies that's being used. And I think the increase is just, and I don't know this, I didn't do a deep dive into this area, but I think it's just a result of the fact that there is more recording going on all the time. Everybody has it in their homes, on their garages, in the schools, in the workplaces. And so I think it's just a byproduct of that. And Professor Ernesto Longa here did the research for me. He's one of our law librarians looking at the increased frequency of this issue coming up. And it has doubled, tripled really in the last decade. But I think it's just the amount of surveillance that's out there is why it's increasing. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's just a background rate kind of issue. Okay. So I learned from your article that there seems to be quite a circuit split on the admissibility of these kinds of lay opinion identification witnesses. So these officers testifying about identification. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So what are the major rules that we see out there? Sure. So And I'm borrowing some of the background on the circuit split from an article by Kim Chanek, and she talks about the three different circuit approaches, and then I sort of go on into some of the other state courts and and what some of the factors are. But she mentions the fact that the 10th and 11th circuits really allow law enforcement officers to provide this lay opinion testimony without any familiarity with the actual events themselves. That is, they have some familiarity with the individual, but they weren't there at all. The seventh and ninth circuits allow the testimony to include what they might have firsthand knowledge of, but also knowledge that they've gained after the fact. So, for example, by interrogating a witness. And then the second, fourth, and eighth circuits have taken a little more restrictive approach, which is the one that Kim Chanek endorses, which is that you should really only allow this testimony when somebody somehow observed what happened and what happened was being recorded. So for example, if an officer stops somebody and their car camera is recording an interaction, 
But what the factors that the courts have come up with, and in my article, I focus on an Illinois state Supreme Court opinion because A, it's recent, and B, it does a really nice job pulling together the factors that have been developed over the past 40 years. So we've really been dealing with this since the mid-70s. And that is, what's the general familiarity of the witness with the subject? How well do they know the witness? Did they know the witness at the time of the incident? Or have they gathered their familiarity from interactions after the incidents, for example, through interrogations? Was the subject of the video in disguise and making it harder to discern who that is? in which case knowledge about the subject's mannerisms, their gait is going to be more helpful to the jury. Has the subject altered their appearance in some way since the video recording? Uh, it's no secret that criminal defendants clean up sometimes for trial, and do they look very, very different than they did at the time of the incident itself? And then, and you already mentioned this, how good or bad is the video quality? And, and this is helpful, and I think the courts have gone a long way to addressing some of the concerns, but it's not, in my opinion, not far enough, because the problems that arrive with an ineffective ability to cross-examine, uh, really ineffective uh, cross-examination, what the Sixth Circuit calls putting criminal defendants between a rock and a whirlpool. Those problems still exist even when these factors are employed, which is why I think a little bit more ought to happen before this kind of opinion testimony is permitted. I'll get back to the effective cross-examination point in a second. I want to go back to your discussion of the circuit splits first. I have to say that I found that the really restrictive approach and if I remember correctly, this is the second circuit, the fourth and the eighth. They basically say that the police officer or whoever this late witness happens to be has to actually have been in the room or at the scene that was being videotaped. And I have to say that I found that restriction rather surprising. And as I read your article, I think you agree with me on this. To my mind, we allow lay opinion identifications of all kinds of things, handwriting, voice, and those things don't seem that different from video. And in those cases, we don't require that the lay handwriting witness actually have witnessed the testator writing out the will. It's fine that you acquired your information elsewhere. Why the super restrictive approach that we see from those circuits. I think Chanik also is in favor of this approach as well. That's right. I think because, A, there is the concern, which we'll get into, about can you actually effectively cross particularly law enforcement officers, probation officers, and if not, is the information, is it really stacking the deck if they weren't there and they didn't perceive something firsthand? So I think they're really putting an emphasis on firsthand observation. And secondly, I think they're perhaps questioning how helpful it is to the jury. And again, I think it's informed by the concerns that perhaps it's not helpful to the jury entirely because they can't be effectively crossed. And so the jury's getting a skewed view. How helpful is it to the jury if they weren't actually there? I mean, the jury... And again, this goes back to some of the factors that courts have employed, but the jury can look at it for themselves. And so how helpful is it? But as you point out, I think that's problematic because that very restrictive approach 
does interfere with getting good evidence that actually can be helpful to the jury because you have law enforcement officers who do have knowledge about an individual, perhaps have interacted with that individual a great deal and, and can help the jury in identifying an individual when the video is not clear. So let's talk a little bit about solutions. Your paper suggests a number of safeguards to constrain this kind of evidence. Tell me a little bit more about those safeguards. The recommendations that I have are really just additions, and I'm pulling from other cases when the courts have focused on these issues. And one is, and it's really all an application of Rule 403, that is just a specific application of when the probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice. One, let's only use the law enforcement lay opinion identification when there's no other evidence. That is, if there aren't any other individuals who could testify potentially to their opinion as to the identity of an individual. And then, and only then, if there are no other witnesses, should we then turn to law enforcement witnesses. Secondly, and some courts have done this, the Illinois court that I talked about earlier didn't require this, don't reference the specific law enforcement relationship. Instead, say that the witness who is a law enforcement officer or is a probation officer has a professional relationship. We have a professional relationship and we meet twice a month. Or say that the officer is a state employee and I frequently encounter this individual this many times a month. That way you're scrubbing it, you're sanitizing it. And actually, when I was looking in advance of our conversation, it looks like the New Jersey courts have recently sort of focused on that aspect of this. Let's sanitize the nature of the relationship if we're going to allow that kind of testimony. If you are going to use law enforcement officers and if you are going to identify them as law enforcement officers, limit the number. I know there, there was a case in the article that I found from Connecticut where there's really just a parade of officers giving lay opinion testimony as to this individual. And really the Thompson case, that's the Illinois case I mentioned earlier, had a number of law enforcement officers testifying in it from different perspectives as to the identity of Mr. Thompson in the video surveillance. And of course, in those cases, they're also on cross-examination. How do you know the defendant, well, it's because I've arrested him before, and so you all have all the character implications there as well. That's the problem. And there's also problems that make it difficult to mine out the motives of an officer on cross or mine out the motives of a probation officer on cross without exposing the experience that that officer has had with the individual just by the fact that they've come into contact with the criminal justice system. That's right. Let me clarify a point that you made earlier about 403. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of these issues go to 403. Either you're increasing probative value, such as when you're saying that there's no alternative evidence, or you're talking about unfair prejudice, which is the character stuff that comes in when you talk about all the prior relationships that the officers have with the defendants. In your mind, is there a need for a special test in this context? Or what you're doing here is just saying, look, courts have to pay attention to the 403 considerations, and these are the ones that they should be looking at. Yeah, the latter. I don't think we need a special rule, for example, that needs to be added to either the state or the federal rules. I just think that whenever there's a rule that allows the trial court discretion, and there are a number, and 403 is the seminal one, then there ought to be some factors that are relied upon in 
deciding how do we balance that? Of course, as you know, there are a number of rules that do it already, but I don't think we have to codify a specific rule. It's the balance of whether or not we admit information that comes out of settlement agreements or we talk about insurance. Those are specific rules. I don't think we have to do that, but I think we can develop a body of case law that's more specific on here's what you really need to look at. How probative is it? And the courts, I think, have done a nice job on that. Where I think we still have problems is defining the nature of unfair prejudice. And I think we can figure out how to make sure that the probative value and that evidence is in fact given to the jury while at the same time making sure that the defendant gets a fair trial. So I don't think you need a special rule. Now, I think that there's one factor that you propose that doesn't quite neatly fit into the 403 framework, which is the requirement that the familiarity with the defendant's appearance has to have been acquired before the litigation or the dispute had occurred. And this, of course, harkens to the handwriting authentication context, which I've always thought was quite fascinating. I'd like you to say some more about why you think that's an important requirement in this context and whether or not it ties with 403 or whether or not actually this is just something additional that needs to be thought about. I think it does still tie to 403 because if you gather your familiarity about the individual, the subject, during the litigation, so for example, during an interrogation, in some ways it is going to be A, less probative, that is because it's less independent of familiarity that was gained before the incident itself, before the litigation. And then I think it's also more prone to bias. And so maybe it's not prejudice so much that it is confusing the issues. But I think you're right. It's not as clean a fit on the 403 analysis as some of the other factors. And you're right. The reason I like that factor is it does tie into something we already do in the field of authentication, which is When we're talking about comparing handwriting specimens, one of the way of authenticating a handwriting specimen is with somebody who's gained familiarity with the handwriting before the litigation. So that, again, we're not stacking the deck, the hand's not on the scale. There was some independent knowledge of this individual before we became a part of the team that is trying to convict them of a crime. And so the other rule that comes into play, and I mean, a lot of this can be fit into rule 701, is how helpful is it actually to the jury if the familiarity came during the litigation? A, we know the jury can, in many cases, figure this out for themselves. As you said, some of the video is so good, they don't really need lay opinion identification testimony. The jury can figure it out for themselves. But how helpful is it to them to have somebody who has formed their opinion as to the identification of the individual in the video because they've been involved in interrogating an individual who is now the accused. It's still helpful because they have had more interactions than the jury has had with that individual and in different contexts, but it's not as helpful as testimony from somebody who had a familiarity with that individual beforehand. So it's kind of interesting. I know this is probably bordering on heresy, but I've long thought that that requirement that you have to obtain the familiarity before the litigation comes from a comparison with experts. So if you're going to acquire this information or acquire the familiarity during the litigation, well, then you might as well require that the parties get an expert because that person is going to be better at I don't know whether there's an expert identifier, but the point is, is that you might as well get someone who's really good. If 
it's acquired before litigation, well, then it can't be so choosy because there's only a limited population of those people. So I suppose this is sort of a decent rule. This preferencing one kind of evidence versus another usually rubs some people the wrong way, but I think that's one of the reasons for that rule. Final question for you. What's next for you? Where does this project go from here? I'm actually changing gears a little bit. I'm on sabbatical this semester, and I'm going to be working on a couple of different things. So I also do work in the civil rights realm. I'm going to be doing some background work on the possibility of a civil rights clinic here at UNM. In the area of trial practice and evidence, I'm going to be doing an article on teaching trial practice and the pedagogy around that. And my general bent, and my students could tell you this, is a lot of teaching of trial practice really puts pressure on people to be so good that they become afraid of trial. Like get up there and be Clarence Darrow without any notes. And that's not realistic. And so I think what happens is people are afraid of trial practice. And so I think there are ways of teaching trial practice that can still challenge individuals, get off your notes when you can to make them effective advocates without making it so aspirational that they come out afraid of trial. I mean, I came from practice. I think people should be willing to go to trial when they need to. And my great hope is that students graduate from UNM and they're not afraid of trial. They know how to do it. Sure, it's a lot of work. There's always scary components, but they're not afraid of the process. And so that's what I'm going to be focusing on in the next six months. Well, it sounds like a great idea. We always talk about how you have vanishing trials and really we need to have more people going to trial. And perhaps some of that can start in the classroom by encouraging our students to do that. Yeah, I personally believe that. Absolutely. Well, George, Thanks for taking the time to talk about this problem of lay identification testimony on surveillance videos and for helping us think through some of its complexities. Great having you on the show. Been a pleasure. Thanks so much. The problem of lay identification testimony offers an interesting tension. On the one hand, something seems wrong with having a police officer look at a video and identified the defendant when the jury could simply view the video for itself. On the other hand, why not? If the police officer is more familiar with the defendant and his mannerisms, wouldn't the police officer's opinion be helpful? In some ways, the problem raises a classic question about when a witness offers sufficient advantages over the jury that the witness can offer an opinion. One instance is obviously when the person is an expert, qualified under Rule 702. But another is this funny idea of lay but particularized knowledge that is found in the advisory committee notes. Specialized information that is specific to a person's life experience, like the value of your home, is admissible lay opinion. Where do these identification witnesses fit into this schema? Well, they're not qualified as experts, so that's obviously out. But a police officer who has had considerable experience with the suspect would seem to have something analogous to particularized knowledge. So why does this police officer still seem wrong? Well, I think it has much to do with the distinction that is made in the rules about handwriting identification that George and I discussed in the interview. Rule 901B allows handwriting identification either by an expert, 
the jury directly through comparison, or a layperson who was previously familiar with the handwriting. Why this category of previously familiar? In part, I think, because it's practical. If the person was already familiar with the handwriting, then fine, let them testify. But if you're going to have the witness learn about the handwriting for purposes of the litigation, well, then we might as well ask an expert to learn about the handwriting for purposes of the litigation. But here's another possible reason. Perhaps the hope is that a person who is previously familiar will be largely nonpartisan and therefore more neutral. A neutral identification is obviously far more valuable to the fact finder than a partisan one, whether it be lay or expert. So how does this insight about neutrality translate to the video identification problem? One possibility is that, as George suggests, if the late witness was previously familiar, then fine, they can testify. But I wonder if, in the video context, whether courts should just say no, no lay identification testimony at all. And why is that? Well, because unlike handwriting testimony, video identification testimony will almost always be partisan. Knowledge of a person's handwriting is a bit specialized. There's only a small group of people who will have that kind of familiarity. Knowledge of a person's appearance, on the other hand, is pervasive. So what happens if you allow video identification testimony? The prosecution will almost always offer the police, and they're not going to be neutral. And the defense will respond with friends and family, who are not going to be neutral either. So these lay opinions will become nothing but swearing contests that are a waste of time for the jury. Better off just leaving it to the jury to decide on its own. Of course, we don't normally exclude evidence because it's biased, but because such lay opinions are already somewhat disfavored, it wouldn't surprise me if these underlying concerns push the courts toward inadmissibility. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.